The Neurodivergent Woman podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hello, this is the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. Hi, I'm Monique Mitchelson and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Libok, and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. Michelle and I met at work and bonded over a shared love of feminism and yoga. We both saw the need to provide a free resource to adult neurodivergent women. And so the Neurodivergent Woman podcast was born. Michelle is neurotypical. And Monique is neurodivergent. And we bring our clinical expertise and lived experience to the topics we explore. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. On today's episode, we're going to talk about autistic burnout. So we're going to unpack all the different aspects of autistic burnout today, including what it actually is, how is it different from things like depression, um, from occupational burnout, so burnout that is experienced by the general population, um, what are some things that we can do as preventative strategies, what are some recovery or treatment strategies, what are some of the positives of autistic burnout? I know that sounds really weird, but there are some. And finally, what are some things for parents to keep in mind? Because another really requested sort of aspect of this topic, I guess, is parents of neurodivergent kids who are neurodivergent themselves, who are experiencing autistic burnout, but through the logistical constraints of parenthood, it's not always possible for them to put in place the strategies that people usually suggest for burnout. So we're going to have a bit of a chat specifically about that um, group. So we're going to start our discussion of autistic burnout with what Monique and I have found to be the most sort of comprehensive um, definition of what autistic burnout actually is. And this comes from a study done in 2020, which is actually one of the first actually quantitative studies on what autistic burnout actually is. Monique, can you share with everyone the title of the study? I think it's quite fabulous. (laughs) Yeah. So the title of the study is Having All of Your Internal Resources Exhausted Beyond Measure and Being Left With No Cleanup Crew. Defining autistic burnout. (laughs) Very informative title. So the definition that these researchers uh, came up with through their research is autistic burnout is a syndrome conceptualized as resulting from chronic life stress and a mismatch of expectations and abilities without adequate supports. It is characterized by pervasive, long-term, typically three plus months, exhaustion, loss of function, and reduced tolerance to stimulus. So there's a lot in that. So I'm going to hand over to Monique as we unpack a little bit about what that means. So autistic burnout is distinct from regular clinical depression and also work burnout. But to understand autistic burnout, I think it's good to actually go through and explain what the concept of burnout actually is and how do people arrive at burnout. Um, So when I'm going through and talking about this with clients, I'll often use like the whiteboard and draw a graph on the whiteboard. 
So um, if you imagine you have like a graph with an X, Y axis and basically one of the axis is like as time goes on and like one of the other axis is as stress increases um, or demands in your life increase and you draw a U-shape sort of line on the graph. So we all need some form of stress in our life. And there's actually a term for this called eustress. It's spelled E-U-S-R. No. <laughs> Wait a moment there. <laughs> it's spelled E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S. Eustress. Is that correct, Michelle? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. I'm not a dictionary, okay? (laughs) Anyway, so um, you stress is basically, you know, positive stress. So we need some form of demand in our life to motivate us to get out of bed, to feed ourselves, you know, to take care of ourselves and do the everyday things that we need to do um, as humans because we're not, you know, sea slugs. We need like a challenge to overcome, even if that challenge is just – pulling off the bed sheets. <laughs> mm, definitely, definitely. Um, so, yeah, if you have, like, enough level of stress in your life, uh, it, it sort of is a positive motivational force to kind of, yeah, like make us live uh, from day to day and meet our own needs. Basically, as the level of stresses rise, though, and as, you know, they are there for a longer and longer period of time, we have our on the graph where we meet our optimal level of performance. So I usually ask people to reflect on, you know, on this graph, what would be your optimal level of performance? And often they'll point to the top of the horseshoe, you know, where it's like, yeah, this is sort of where optimal level is. And I I go, no, that's actually peak performance. So that's where like, say, um, if you're like going for a run or whatever, you're running flat out. And so you are putting everything into your performance. You are sprinting like it is your peak level of where you're actually able to meet all your demands and do extra level of demands. So think of like at school, it might be exam time where, you know, you're studying more than you usually would. You're staying up late at night. You're putting everything into it. We're not actually meant to sustain this. And this is whether you're neurotypical or neurodivergent, you know, we're not meant to sustain that level level of peak performance for longer than probably a few days to a few weeks. It really depends on the individual person and the individual level of, you know, resources that they have. But actually our optimal level of performance is further back down the graph. Um, it's really not at that peak in the the horseshoe. Um, it's sort of, yeah, maybe like at about 75% of performance effort. And that's where if you were um, like, I don't know why I'm using a running metaphor because I hate running and I like, I would never do that. But This is um, like me. I always use car metaphors and I don't know anything <laughs> about cars other than they yeah, go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but if you were to do like a slow, steady jog, that is where your um, optimal level of performance is. It's it's a pace that you can maintain effortlessly. It's not draining you constantly to maintain that pace. That is like your walking, jogging pace. Mm, it's that sustainable. You can keep going. Yeah, it's sustainable yeah. long term. And you're not you're not um, causing stress to your like muscles or joints mm, or anything like that. Mm, you're not injuring yourself. You're not going to the point of exhaustion. Mm. So that's actually the pace that we should all be maintaining 
happening in our lives um, to avoid burnout. Again, whether you're neurotypical or neurodivergent, we're meant to increase our performance when we have additional stresses come on our plate. So, you know, maybe um, like that exam period, maybe stuff's happening in your home life or, um, you know, an emergency is happening, you know, with your kids or whatever. Um, but yeah, we're not really meant to maintain that. And what usually ends up happening is people will have all these extra demands put on their plate, again, whether they're neurodivergent or neurotypical. And over time, if they don't go back down the graph to that optimal place of that 75%, but they maintain that 100% all out performance, they start to slide down the other side of the horseshoe. And this is where, you know, they are starting, their performance is decreasing as time is going on and as that level of stress is maintained. Um, and basically your performance starts suffering. So after you're running, 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 you start getting tired, you start slowing down, you start making mistakes. And this is where I explain occupational burnout to people. Okay. Cause often people will come and present, you know, in burnout and it's usually from, extra stress at work, but then maybe extra things happening, you know, in their home life and it's just all happened at once. And so when, whenever anyone has a bunch of stresses all happen at the same time, it's really normal for that to exceed your capacity to cope. Um, and if those go on and on, that's where you're going to like end up in burnout again, no matter what your neurotype is. And when you start sliding down into, I guess, the the other side of the graph and your performance drops, over time, it'll get worse and worse until you reach a stage just before full burnout. And that's called brownout. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know why it's called brownout, but you know, that's what it's called. Well, it's like a dim light, right? Yeah. It's like the light isn't, it's not mm. a blackout but it's a brownout. It's like low power mode. Yeah. And I'm going to completely switch metaphors here Love it. <laughs> to a car metaphor. Yeah, my favorite. <laughs> so if you were a car, basically when you reach brownout, this is when your fuel warning light turns on and goes, you have low fuel. You need to get this car serviced soon or it's going to break down. You know, and often when people present to therapy, uh, it's when they've reached brownout or near brownout. They haven't actually reached full burnout yet. And I explain that, you know, full burnout is when you actually have no fuel left in the tank. You are completely depleted and exhausted physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, and this is where sometimes people will wake up one day and they can't get out of bed again. Um, and when you reach full burnout, again, whether you're neurodivergent or neurotypical, um, it's probably going to be like at least, you know, three to six months of not being able to do much and really actually having to rest and fill your fuel tank back up again because you've completely depleted it. And when you reach full burnout, um, yeah, basically a lot of people will end up with occupational burnout, actually burning out of that career or that occupation. And the thought of, you know, even if they take six or 12 months off, the thought of going back to that particular job or career actually gives them like a trauma reaction. They, they go, oh, I just never want to go back. Like it gives me flashbacks. 
whatever. I want to avoid going back to that at all costs. And a lot of people end up retraining and going and doing something completely different um, because they've burned out of that particular profession. And so, yeah, if you love your job or if you have, like, if you're passionate about that area of work, it's really important not to get to that point of complete burnout because it's such a shame to have to walk away, you know, from that professional career that you found really meaningful or enjoyable. So when you reach brownout, um, so you haven't, you know, reached full burnout yet, okay, but it's coming, usually the signs that people will notice, particularly if it's occupational burnout, is where they once enjoyed going into work, they'll have a feeling of, I really don't want to go into work today. Um, They're uninspired. They feel flat. They feel unmotivated about going into work. They're needing to take more sick days, more holidays. They will come home from work and not be able to switch off from work. So even when they're at home or trying to engage in other areas of their life, they'll just be constantly thinking about work. Their sleep starts to get affected. They start to get anxious about work. They start to get like a bit of an immune system breakdown. So they'll get more colds or flus or be like unwell all the time. They'll also find that um, they will start to make more mistakes at work, more errors. Um, And often this might be because they're working longer hours or they're not taking their lunch breaks. Um, And studies have actually shown that if you do that, Uh, you are not working as efficiently or effectively because you're exhausted. You're mentally exhausted and you might be at work working longer hours, but your mind is not actually taking in that information or able to make effective decisions at work. I would add to that as well that some people's jobs are kind of like a series of crises where, you know, say if you work in a really high stress environment, you might find that, okay, I don't take lunch breaks and I work really long hours. Um, and I never make mistakes. You know, my work is perfect. And oftentimes the, the reason for that is you're running on such a high level of adrenaline. And so you might be actually still doing your work perfectly, but what it takes your nervous system to be able to sustain that level of focus is an incredibly dysfunctional level of adrenaline day to day. So that exactly as you said, Monique, um, you might feeling like you're getting more sick, you know, as soon as you take a break, say you, you know, have a weekend away or something like that, you immediately get sick or immediately get a cold, or, you know, the rest of your life is a little bit in shambles in terms of, say, the emotional health of your relationships, um, you're not having time for hobbies or other things that you used to enjoy because, yes, maybe your work isn't suffering, but what's the cost of that? Yeah, and a lot of people will find that they become so focused um, on their work that they are neglecting basic needs like, you know, proper nutrition, Mm. preparing food for themselves, like going for a walk, exercise, so that the other parts of their life are suffering. Mm. Another thing that can contribute to reaching that brownout point with occupational burnout is a lot of people who um, present to therapy at that point in, you know, their burnout, I'll ask them, when was the last time you actually had, you know, a holiday or annual leave from your job? And often it will be, oh, over a year ago or two years. And I'll actually explain to them, look, part of managing burnout. And in Australia, we 
we all have four weeks of annual leave. That which is not enough. <laughs> which is not enough, no, that you are supposed to take every year. It's more than other countries, like often um, the United States actually allocates a lot less annual leave for their workers, but countries in Europe will uh, quite often have six weeks of annual leave, you know, that you're entitled to. And it's really important that you actually take that annual leave every year to prevent burnout. Uh, And a lot of people aren't aware of this or don't know about this because we don't talk about burnout and how to manage and prevent burnout. Even in high stress jobs, it's not really talked about. The only field that I know of that makes people aware of burnout is psychology, Mm. right? We get taught in university that we are in a career that is there is propensity to burnout and these are things to manage burnout and compassion fatigue and things like that. Um, but even like emergency services, they, they don't have like a widespread work education program where every worker knows what burnout is and how to prevent it in those high stress professions that are prone to burnout. You know, if you work in an industry that's a high um, care industry or a caring industry, all the normal things that, you know, we just talked about around occupational fatigue apply, but then there's that added layer of like feeling responsible for other people's well-being in whatever, you know, respect that that might or whatever form that might take. Um, And that adds a definite additional layer to that. Definitely. Yeah. And I think too, um, some of the traits or characteristics that I see in people who, again, whether neurotypical or neurodivergent are experiencing occupational burnout are, you know, if you're a people pleaser, If you are an overachiever or a workaholic, if you are a person that has difficulty saying no or setting boundaries in the workplace, you are going to be more prone to burnout as well if you have any sort of cognitive stuff or beliefs going on around like easily feeling guilt and over-responsibility, which is part of sometimes difficulty with making and keeping boundaries, then you're going to be more prone to burnout and perfectionism. So these are all factors, again, whether you're neurotypical or neurodivergent, that it's really important to be aware of as factors that you need to probably look at addressing or working through, whether it's in therapy, whether it's self-help, just in general with burnout. I also find another really common feature of of the psychology of people who are prone to occupational burnout is schemas around um, achievement and worth and feeling like my whole sense of identity and self-worth is tied up in being a high achiever, as you mentioned, or, you know, performing optimally. And so a lot of times for people who are you know, who have those kind of internalized beliefs, it can actually feel really anxiety provoking, distressing and scary to step back from work, even if you know you're in brownout or you need to, or you're not functioning or it's no longer, you know, sustainable or functional for you, because then there's that voice in your head that's like, but that means that you're not worthy. (laughs) That means that, you know, what's the point of you? if you step back from work. So I think that's a really important thing to acknowledge as well. And exactly as you said, Monique, if you identify with any of these sort of traits that we've chatted through as being kind of um, 
common traits in people who are prone to occupational burnout, it's really important to identify that and work on those things because if you stay in those situations, you're going to end up in full burnout and that's going to take so much longer to recover from. Yeah, and I think we really need more widespread education on just burnout in general because often people don't realize or haven't been educated on the consequences of reaching that full burnout. And once they hear that information, they're horrified and they go, oh my gosh, I really need to, you know, make some changes, even though this could be really scary and confronting, you know, and bring up stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But I really don't want to end up in full occupation So we've just talked a little bit about occupational burnout or sort of generalized burnout that anyone can experience regardless of neurotype. Monique, can you tell us a little bit about depression and what differentiates depression from burnout and how do you kind of know the difference? So we chatted in detail about depression in an episode in season three of the podcast. So if you want to look into that into more detail, you can check that out. But basically, depression can be brought on by occupational burnout or general life stresses that you're going through. There can be other triggers for clinical depression. But basically with depression, some of the similarities between depression and burnout can be things like that fatigue, lowered motivation, um, you know, cognitive uh, symptoms like noticing your memory isn't as good or having difficulty concentrating. But with depression, uh, particularly in neurotypical people, the general treatment for depression is actually, yes, reducing some of those workplace demands and stresses where you can, but also like increasing your activity level and doing more self-care things like getting up and going for that walk or going out to that social event with friends because those are strategies that usually neurotypical people find helps them to move through that depression and resolve that depression whereas with burnout again whether you're neurotypical or neurodivergent if you are exhausted and you've reached that brownout or that burnout If you're doing what we call behavioral activation, which is a cognitive behavioral therapy strategy more for depression, if you're being encouraged to go out and do more, like go go shopping, go hang out with friends, like go to this concert, go do this, go do that, go, you know, exercise, that will actually deplete you more. So with burnout, you actually need to be really resting more and doing doing less. And how to tell the difference is if you've gone and done that behavioral activation and you actually don't experience um, a lift in your mood, you don't feel more of a sense of well-being and you feel more depleted and exhausted, that can be a helpful point to then go, okay, is this depression or is this actually burnout? Do I need to do more or do I need to actually do less and rest? Yeah, I find kind of from a neurobiological perspective, depression or treatment for depression is basically about increasing um, neurotransmitters like serotonin, dopamine, things that are mood stabilizers or things that give us that reward kind of kick. So this is why, as you say, Monique, going out and kind of doing those things that produce 
serotonin, dopamine can be really, really helpful. For burnout though, from the neurobiological perspective, it's really a state of nervous system exhaustion. It's a state of nervous system burnout, essentially, where you actually just need to rest and recuperate. Things that I will say though that are helpful for both depression and burnout is being in nature. You know, that's definitely a massive serotonin boost um, and that's really helpful whether you're in burnout or whether you're experiencing depression because, again, it's not just a, oh, nature's pretty, um, which it is, but it actually has measurable biological effects on our brain activity. It's very soothing, very mood stabilizing. Um, so being in nature as much as possible is really helpful. Exercise is also helpful, but again, that doesn't have to mean running a marathon. That can mean just moving your body. Our basic needs of good nutrition, moving our body, hydration, sunlight, so nature, and some form of connection, that's our kind of core needs. That's like the foundational parts of making our body work. So those things are helpful whether you're in burnout or depression. Yeah, I'm actually a big fan of bed yoga. Ooh, tell burnout. me more. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're completely depleted and exhausted and you don't want to get out of bed or can't get out of bed, there is literally nothing stopping you from just doing some gentle stretches while lying horizontal in bed. You know, you don't have to get up and get into yoga clothing or go to a yoga studio, engage in that. It's really about if you're burned out, trying to make these things as accessible and simple and easy to do as possible, like removing as many barriers as you can. So we've talked about depression. We've talked about general burnout. What we want to do now is really dive a bit more deeply into autistic burnout and how is that different from what we've just talked about. So we're going to start off with unpacking what are some of the causes of autistic burnout specifically and what are some of the things that exacerbates autistic burnout. So a good way of thinking about it, and this model is what was suggested by the researchers in the study that we mentioned earlier. And actually what we'll do is link the, uh, link that study in our show notes because it's open access. So if you want to have a read of it, I really suggest that it's really accessible. Um, it's a really good research study, one of the first on autistic burnout. So a model that they've suggested is that essentially autistic burnout is basically driven by expectations outweighing someone's abilities. And what leads to that is two things, cumulative load in that person's life. So a lot of different things adding to the load and then an inability to obtain relief from that load. So we're going to start by talking through some of the things that cause that cumulative load. So Monique, can you take us through some of the key factors in cumulative load? Yeah, so I really do think that for autistic people, having a different nervous system 
Um, and having like a brain that processes information differently really can contribute to, you know, living in a neurotypical world and becoming exhausted and burned out by that. Because if you're thinking about, you know, what makes autistic burnout unique from generalized burnout, it's having those extra factors of sensory differences and sensitivities in processing sensory information. So if you're in the same environment as a bunch of other people who have a different nervous system, a different brain, a different capacity to process that environment. If you have a more sensitive nervous system, if processing all of that sensory data and information actually, you know, takes longer or takes more out of you or drains you more, then just, you know, existing in that environment is going to add to that cumulative load. Having a different nervous system is interesting too because you can't kind of like just chop it out and then put in a new nervous system. Like there's certainly things you can do to regulate your nervous system and like there's changes that you can make in your external environment. But, you know, the fact remains you have a different nervous system that, you know, usually is more sensitive. The second thing is cognitive processing differences, even just like how the brain processes information and how the brain is wired. So you'll be able to speak more to this, Michelle, than me. But if your brain takes longer and processes information with more details in a situation, then again, it's going to take longer to process the same tasks that someone else is doing. And that processing might exhaust you or deplete you more. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And something that can contribute to like standalone occupational burnout as well for autistic people, if you're existing in situations and environments where you're continually expected to um, have that kind of big picture thinking when you're naturally a detail thinker, like if you're naturally a bottom-up thinker, so all the details, and then that slowly leads to the big picture as opposed to a top-down thinker, you miss the details and see the big picture and then you can kind of filter down. If you're operating in a situation that's requiring your brain to function not like opposite to its natural kind of process, that is exhausting that's really tiring. Um, and I think that's a really big factor too, uh, something that I often hear from clients in feeling bad at their jobs, feeling like, you know, over a lifetime of feeling like, oh God, I just, I don't get things as quickly. And I'm not talking about social stuff here, just like work-related stuff, or it always seems to take me longer to do things or things that seem so obvious to other people at work and not to me. And it can lead to this really inbuilt and ingrained feeling of, I just feel stupid. I just feel constantly behind the eight ball. But the reason for that is you're just having to process the information in a way that's opposite to how your brain naturally wants to process it. So I think that's a major factor to burnout and also just to general nervous system overload, which we've talked about before, being so aware of details. Yeah, I think the the third factor that plays in also is interoception differences. And again, we've had an episode where we discuss interoception in detail. So go and check that out if you want more information about that. But um, for example, if you have difficulty picking up signals from your body um, about things like hunger cues or thirst cues or fatigue or pain, you may be going into a 
educational settings or work settings or parenting or caring settings where your body is not sending you those signals or it's more difficult to read those signals of when to stop and take breaks. So a common theme that I've heard from autistic people and, you know, a lot of autistic women as well with caring responsibilities is just constantly being on the go, pushing through, not noticing or, you know, listening to signals from their body to stop and take a break. And sometimes that can be as a result of trying to hold neurotypical expectations upon yourself and, you know, looking around and going, well, if everyone else can do this, then, you know, I have to as well. So yeah, this is things like not taking those breaks, not building rest into the structure of your life and just really trying to take life at the pace of a neurotypical person. Mm -hmm. And that in itself is going to lead to, yeah, just that demand constantly exceeding your capacity. Another thing that I would add is the impact actually of life changes. So everyone obviously goes through transition periods in their life. We transition from childhood to adolescence, adolescence to adulthood, moving schools, you know, going to university or post, you know, high school jobs, then moving through jobs, relationships ending, you know, this and then new relationships starting. There's so many transitions in our life. And one of the biggest transitions for everyone, regardless of whether you're neurodivergent or neurotypical, is the transition from adolescence into adulthood. And that can happen at different ages. You know, some people leave home at 16 and they're forced to be an adult at that point. Some people kind of move into that transition in their early 20s or even their mid-20s. For everyone, essentially, that transition from that adolescent period of your life to adulthood is something that happens and it's a very stressful period and it can bring up lots of emotions, lots of feelings. But the thing that's often not acknowledged is that all of these life transitions are actually a lot more draining and a lot harder for autistic people. And that's for so many reasons that we don't have the scope to kind of nail into today. But acknowledging that is actually very normal if you're autistic and you're having a harder time moving between life phases or life transitions, particularly the adolescence to adulthood transition. And that's often where we find or research finds that autistic individuals experience their first burnout in that transition. And I, you know, just clinically, I'm interested to hear what you think about this, Monique, but in that year 11 year, so much burnout. I would agree. And it, it's quite interesting just hearing from different people, you know, often when um, looking at people's history and you even start to ask them about primary school and they'll say, you know, I would fall asleep in class or on my lunch hour or, you know, coming home from school, I would immediately need to go to my room and sleep and I would literally sleep, you know, till dinner and then maybe have a bit of time to do homework and then go to sleep again at night. And so you're actually seeing signs of that overload on the nervous system and burnout management that that individual is trying to do without maybe realizing it from primary school. And then again, a big transition is from primary school to high school. So around grade seven or eight, you know, whenever that happens for people, yeah, you'll see people start to not be able to manage going to school five days a week 
because the demands, the sensory demands, the informational demands, the executive functioning demands are more than their capacity. And so they might be having a lot of sick days and attending school two or three days a week. And then, yeah, grade 11 and 12, often by the time high school finishes, people are done like they are so burned out and it is actually a good idea depending on the individual to think about having a gap year after finishing high school and just taking a year off to recover from <laughs> 13 years of school before you know maybe going into further study if that's what you want to do or work or whatever yeah and what i actually even often suggest to parents who either have kids in high school or have kind of um late primary aged kids so transitioning into high school is preempting this and saying your child's high school experience is not going to be a neurotypical child's high school experience. Here's all the things that they're likely to experience. They are likely to find the five-day-a-week, high-demand, high-social load, high-sensory load, all the things that go into making school very draining and overstimulating. Their nervous system is going to find that overwhelming. So rather than waiting for the wheels to fall off and the burnout to happen, it's crucially important for neurodivergent kids to find a school that actually is a really good fit for them and preemptively building in mental health days into the term so that rather than waiting for them to be like, oh, I'm sick, I can't go to school or I'm exhausted or I can't get out of bed, actually scheduling into the calendar, here are your mental health days or here, here are your rest days and just having that be a standard part of the process. Also, I think considering alternative schooling in year 11 and 12, where it doesn't need to be the five-day-a-week intense, I'm going to school every day. If you're expecting that to happen and you're prepared for it and you're thinking about alternatives to the high school pathway, it can actually avoid a lot of pain and suffering and a lot of stress for the entire family, including the child, rather than just kind of, you know, trying to react to it after it happens. And I think too, something that often gets my goat a little bit is, you know, when we've got a child who's autistic, who is school, what's called school refusing, right? You know, essentially meaning they're overwhelmed in the school environment. The goals are always, how do we get this child back to five-day-a-week school? How do we get this child back to functioning, quote-unquote, normally at school? Whereas I think the goal actually needs to be, okay, this environmental structure or situation doesn't work for this child. How do we actually work out a system that's better suited to what they need in the moment? And going back to school five days a week is actually just not realistic for all kids. And, you know, I'm, I'm on a rant here, but um, the thing that often frustrates me in these conversations is when it's like, oh, well, you know, back in the day, everyone just had to go to school and they just, they just did it. They went to school. That's actually not true. I actually know personally of multiple people who, when reflecting back on their, you know, older people, reflecting back on their high school experience, either they themselves or a sibling or someone they know was like, oh, yeah, so-and-so just suddenly couldn't go to school. They just stopped going to school. So this always happened. We just dealt with it differently. Mm. Yeah, or a lot of people 50 or 60 years ago would go to school till grade seven and yeah. not go to high school exactly. or go to school till grade 10 and then leave school to go to work or whatever. 
So I guess to bring it back to our original point about life transition points being really exhausting and adding significantly to the load for autistic people, this is one of those situations where knowing in advance can make all the difference. So if you know that you're autistic and that your nervous system is likely to find these big kind of life transition points more overwhelming, more draining than a neurotypical person, then you can actually account for that in your life. Like for instance, even just thinking about a breakup, like a neurotypical person might be able to go through a breakup and they might be really upset and really struggling, but they might still be able to go to work and do what they need to do. If you are an autistic person and you've experienced, you know, the transition and ending of a relationship, you might be like, I need to take three weeks off because my entire body, nervous system, mind, state of being is overwhelmed by this experience and I can't possibly add anything extra to my load at this point. Similarly, any, you know, even positive life transitions, moving from one state to another, preempting that and working out how you can actually make space in your life for what you're experiencing, and that's totally valid, as a really overwhelming or intense experience. Yeah, even things like moving in with a partner, um, getting married, Mm. very intense experience. Yeah. Things like having children, starting a business, all of those different things. I think it's important to allow padding in around those times and to know that, yeah, like a lot of your energy might be sort of tied up in just processing those events. And this brings me to like my next point. I think it's really important that we talk about autistic burnout and that health professionals, medical professionals, educators, parents, autistic people, neurodivergent people, that we all become more aware of this concept because uh, it's, it's just so important in terms of setting up your life and knowing what's going to work for you and what's not going to work for you and the expectations um, that you might have of loved ones who are autistic. You know, if you uphold neurotypical expectations of being able to juggle multiple demands at the one time forever without needing a break from those, then that's that's actually not going to be helpful for that person. And, you know, even just thinking back to things like in adult life, right? So we've had a chat about school. So in adult life, people are expected to do so many things and juggle so many demands at once. And because in Westernized society, we're really kind of isolated to our individual households and people in those households have to do all these different tasks or duties. There is no longer that sort of village where everyone works communally and, you know, takes on different demands and kind of like jobs, job shares or job switches and things like that amongst different people and people have different roles like within that village or community. So, you know, for an adult, you're expected to work full time five days a week and parent, which is a 24 hour day job and maintain, you know, a relationship, romantic relationship and friendships on top of that and acquaintances and take care of all of your medical and health needs, and cook, and clean, look after your pets, and maybe study as well. Um, And if you're running your own business, there are demands on that as well. And do all of that at the same time. 
for anybody, I think that's going to be a lot. And this is why I think, you know, we're seeing even neurotypical people feeling burned out and anxious and depressed all the time. Mm. But for an autistic person, that's a lot. So I think if you know about this stuff ahead of time, really thinking about what you can take on and looking at is juggling multiple demands actually sustainable for you long term is pretty important. Mm -hmm. Like when I reflect back on my days studying at university, just like as a personal example, when I was doing my undergraduate degree, I had zero friends, no boyfriend. And so I was able to actually study full-time and my study was in my special interest so I was obsessed with it but I literally didn't do anything else except study and also try to maybe juggle a part-time job and I was living at home at the time Mm. and I really think reflecting back on that if I actually had friendships and a romantic relationship and maybe like other hobbies or whatever that I would have been in burnout. Juggling all those things at the same time might have been too much for me personally. And then when I reflect on doing my master's of clinical psychology, things were different. I had a romantic relationship. I actually had a couple of friends at that point and I was trying to study full-time, travel to a regional university and work a part-time job and I ended up burning out. And that was my first really big um, autistic burnout And that resulted in a bunch of chronic health conditions. And I actually had to um, study my master's part-time and then do my registrar program after that part-time. And since then, I've actually not been able to work five days a week. Reflecting back on my life, it's like, yeah, I've actually worked, I mean, like in my mid-30s now, and I've only ever worked full-time like two years in my life. Brains can get very noisy. I tend to go through phases in what's most helpful in quieting that noise and recentering. And at the moment, I've been gravitating towards music and soundscapes, slowly making my way through a huge library on the Calm app. And I've been trying to get better at having a more peaceful morning routine. And I've definitely found that the morning playlists really help a lot with that, actually. Yeah, I think most people think of meditation as the only way we can ground ourselves and quiet our brain, but sound and music are actually so helpful. What's really cool about the music and sound library on Calm is the variety. They've got playlists for times of the day and certain moods, soundscapes, and even alpha wave and bilateral stimulation tracks, which can be incredibly effective at helping you to emotionally regulate and getting your brain in a sleep-ready state. For sure. My favourites at the moment are the Disney soundscapes. So they've got things like An Evening in Jasmine's Garden, Merida's Mystical Scottish Forest, um, as well as other ones that you'd expect, like Rolling Thunderstorms and the like. The Calm app puts the tools that you need to feel better in your back pocket. If you go to calm.com forward slash neuro, you'll get a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription. And new content is added every week. For listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com forward slash neuro. Go to C-A-L-M 
dot com slash n-e-u-r-o for 40% off unlimited access to calm's entire library that's calm.com forward slash neuro yeah i think that's a really great example of the difference between your undergrad and your postgrad and how that kind of manifested for you and that's actually a really lovely segue into uh it's like we planned this (laughs) that's a lovely segue into the other kind of, I guess, arm or branch of things that contribute to that expectations outweighing abilities. And this is the inability to obtain relief from all of those cumulative stresses that we talked about. So one of the biggest factors in autistic individuals not being able to obtain that sense of relief from that cumulative stress is this idea of gaslighting or dismissal of the autistic needs. So what you just described then, I think that's such a fantastic example because if you're thinking about, you were saying, okay, I was studying, I was um, in a live-in romantic relationship, I had to kind of travel back and forth between different places and I had a part-time job as well. So what's interesting is the neurotypical expectation there would be Yeah, and that's, you know, those things are kind of what would be considered quote-unquote normal, right? And so that makes sense for a neurotypical person because some of the neurotypical cognitive strengths is in juggling multiple demands, multiple kind of, you know, following multiple lanes of information, being able to manage multiple expectations. And again, this comes back to that neurotypical cognitive strength in big picture thinking, right? As opposed to detail thinking. And we've talked before, I think maybe on our executive function episode, um, I forget which episode, but we've talked before about how, um, you know, if you're thinking about one demand, like for instance, a, or, or what a neurotypical person might think of as one demand, right? Like managing a relationship. That's not one task for an autistic person. So rather than what you've just described being four tasks, right, which is how a neurotypical person would think of it, for you, that's like 120 tasks. (laughs) (laughs) That makes sense. (laughs) Which is why it was so much more overwhelming for you because it's so many more tasks, so many more, you know, aspects of those tasks that you're aware of and that you're trying to manage each individual element of that. So when we come back to this idea of like gaslighting and dismissal, I think a lot of autistic people, again, particularly before diagnosis, can have that internalized belief of like, well, why can't I manage this? Everyone else is doing this. Why is this so much harder for me? You know, I just need to pull my socks up, grip my teeth and just push through it because there must be something wrong with me that I can't manage this rather than coming from that place of, oh, this makes total sense that I can't manage this because I have a different neurology to the person to my left. And then the flip side of that or, you know, the other side there is the feedback from neurotypical people, which is, yeah, why can't you manage it? Right. Yeah. It's like, well, what's the big deal? Why is this so hard? Again, coming from that place of lack of understanding. And that creates a huge barrier to support for autistic people or, or putting in place, you know, changes that are needed because it's that sense of like, oh, well, I'm overreacting or I'm making this up or I'm exaggerating it. 
Yeah, and I find even with, you were talking before about the education system, it's about, well, how do we fix you so that you can function like a neurotypical and juggle multiple things and, you know, be in school five days Mm, a week or work mm. five days a week. So, you know, if you were to go to like a health professional or a mental health professional, all the therapies and the modalities and stuff like that, they're all about restoring function and about sort of going, oh, well, you know, you're burned out at the moment. How can we get you back to working full-time or being able to manage a full-time study load. So I think it's really important we have this education getting out there of going, no, it's not so much about that. It's really about being able to really self-reflect on what actually is your capacity and like what other demands that you think you can actually manage with the resources that you have. How can you outsource certain demands that you may not have the energy or resources to do yourself or that you're not interested in giving your precious time and energy to those things so that you can really focus on managing those demands that are more of a priority for you or are important to you. I think another contributor to autistic burnout for people is also masking. So it's really about whether you're aware of your diagnosis or not, feeling like you are not fitting in with that neurotypical expectation and gritting your teeth and pushing through. And often that includes masking socially, but also masking in different areas of your life in terms of performance and going, you know, I have to perform at this certain level. I have to act in this certain way or have these certain types of relationships or do things in a certain way. Yeah. And I think that fits in with what we were saying before around the whole, you know, dismissal of, of needs and the kind of gaslighting around, well, this shouldn't be a problem because masking is that kind of double-edged sword. Obviously, there's problems to the individual themselves. It costs a lot to be continually masking. But also, I think it can contribute to that sense of the people around you being like, what do you mean you're not coping? You just need to have a good night's sleep. You'll feel better tomorrow. Because what's actually going on internally is covered by that mask. So I think that can be actually another barrier to support. If you've been masking your whole life or, you know, continually around a particular group of people, it can lead to that sense of people almost not believing you. And I'm not saying for one second that that's your fault for masking. Of course not. But when we think about all the factors that go into those barriers, people who are particularly good maskers are often met with the most kind of vocal, no, that can't possibly be the case. Yeah, and I think it makes it really hard to ask for help because if you have been appearing to function in a certain way or at a certain level for so long, it's not until sometimes you collapse Mm -hmm. and you just don't have the energy to maintain that mask And then everyone sees how much you've been struggling underneath and goes, why didn't you ask for help or, you know, this or that. And it's like, well, because you feel like you have to keep that mask up no matter what. Yeah, absolutely. Not feeling like you can ask for help. Major barrier to support. And then also part of that is I know a lot of people struggle to ask for help because they're kind of looking around and they're seeing, well, I don't actually think that help is available I don't think that the workplace that I'm in uh, will actually meet my needs. There's no one else in my family who can take care of these kids. There's not enough public services to support me in the way that I need to be supported. So struggling to ask for help because of masking and also feeling like, well, there's no one but me. 
or there's no help available, I think can be really tricky. So I think it's really important to get some information out there about what are actually the signs that you are in autistic burnout that are specific to autism and autistic burnout and not just the stuff we covered with occupational and generalized burnout. So one of the signs that you're in autistic burnout can be exhaustion that's not relieved by rest or sleep. So no matter how much you rest, you're still chronically exhausted and fatigued that you start to withdraw and want to spend a lot more time alone. You're not wanting to interact with others or have any demands because of just that level of exhaustion. You may have increased periods where you find that you go nonverbal because, again, just so fatigued and depleted. You might find that you are really having a lot more time where you're needing to spend on your interests or depending on how severe the autistic burnout, some people actually lose interest in their special interest, which is pretty alarming if you've ever experienced that um, because it's very unusual. And I think that's potentially where uh, depression comes in as well. As you were saying before, Monique, you can experience depression as a secondary symptom of burnout. Mm, Absolutely. And anxiety as well as a secondary symptom of chronic burnout. You may find um, that you're having a lot more difficulty in meeting your basic needs. So finding it really hard to drink water, to eat foods. I've had like anecdotally reported that when people are in autistic burnout, they've really find that their sensory sensitivities are much more and it can mean that they are more attracted to maybe bland foods, foods that are not going to take as much of a toll sensory-wise. And I have a little bit of a theory about that. I wonder if that sort of white diet that is really known um, among autistic people of just wanting to eat white, bland-tasting foods is actually more secondary to constantly being overstimulated and in burnout. It's interesting that you say that that's something you noticed kind of anecdotally with clients because I think that's something that actually comes up in the research quite um, strongly, that actually a really key sign of autistic burnout is increased sensitivity to sensory stimuli. And so a lot of people reporting things like not able to do regular things that they were previously totally able to do. And exactly as you said, the food stuff is huge. So often we see as a sign of autistic burnout an increasingly restricted palate, needing to eat the same foods. And another thing that we see a lot that comes out in the research around food is not just increased sensitivity to taste, but very texture-based sensitivity to food. So completely not able to eat certain foods anymore because of the texture. Mm, I mean, that really makes sense. So some of the other signs um, as well are finding that your executive functioning uh, may be worse than what is usual for you. Um, Finding that masking takes so much more of a toll than usual for you. Increased irritability, increased meltdowns and shutdowns are another big sign um, that your nervous system is in burnout. Yeah, so I think with those things essentially being the reduced executive functioning, reduced ability to emotionally regulate, um, which is an aspect of executive functioning. Again, if you take a listen to our executive functioning episode, we talk about how our executive function team is 
pretty much the first team to go offline when we're under stress. So something that I'll often include in the diagnostic process if someone presents for ADHD assessment is, is it ADHD or are you in autistic burnout and you're experiencing a really excessive decline in your executive function skills. And often, you know, the really tricky thing, just as a side note, when we're trying to differentiate ADHD versus say a potential, you know, autistic burnout is, as we know, someone who is an ADHD will have experienced those traits all the way, you know, through their life from when they're little. But as we just talked about, people who are autistic can also experience brownouts and burnouts all the way from primary through. So if you're a clinician and you're listening to this episode, a really important thing to consider in the diagnostic process for ADHD, because we know how common the co-occurrence of autism and ADHD is, is, is this person an ADHDer and or (laughs) are they experiencing chronic autistic burnout? Yeah, that's a really good point. Something else that I would also say can be a sign of autistic burnout is um, increased stimming, which is an emotional regulation tool. Also increased need for that routine, that comfort of routine and predictability. I think, again, just trying to self-regulate and self-manage. You may notice increased demand avoidance, so any demand on your time, like, you know, a text message from a friend or needing to RSVP to an appointment. It's just sort of like, no, can't cope with that. I'm sorry, I just can't reply back to you. Increased somatic symptoms, so things like headaches, stomach aches, worsening chronic pain or chronic fatigue if you have that going on. Yeah, and immune system breakdown and health issues. Yeah, that's a really comprehensive list. And I think one of the results of all of those things that you mentioned, Monique, is what's experienced as a loss of skills. So feeling like I can't do the things that I previously could do. And the reason for that experience of loss of skills is all the multifaceted courses that you just went through, but that's kind of what it comes out as. And for a lot of autistic individuals in burnout, oftentimes a fear is that, am I actually ever going to return to what my baseline is? Will I get back to that point of being able to do X, Y, and Z that I could do before? And that can be really scary. Yeah, absolutely. And something that is, I think, difficult for people to sit with is actually going, you know, well, what actually is my baseline? Because they may have been masking and pushing through again since they were in primary school. And so they don't know what their baseline is that actually is sustainable for them. So our next topic in autistic burnout is what can we actually do about it? So we're going to kind of break this down into preventative strategies. So things that you can actually start to put in place in your life to prevent full burnout, because as we've sort of alluded to, getting to an actual point of burnout, the length of recovery, the amount of rest you have to take, it's a health condition. Like it's essentially your body is experiencing a health trauma when you're in burnout. So as much as possible, we really want to try and focus on these preventative strategies to avoid that. So we're going to chat through some preventative strategies and then talk a little bit about if you are in burnout, what can we do as sort of treatment and recovery? 
So I think the biggest preventative strategy is really assessing and being honest with yourself about, you know, what is a lifestyle that is sustainable for you long term for the demands that you have and that doesn't lead to burnout. And it's really important to bring in adequate supports to really help prevent that burnout. Something that's important to do, and you might want to take a moment to write this down or process it in a way that works for you, but really maybe write down like what actually is your overall social load over a regular week? Like how many social interactions with different people, including your own children, do you have in a day or your partner or whatever? What actually is your school or occupational workload in a week? How many hours are you spent doing those different tasks for that? What is your overall sensory load in a week on your nervous system? What is your overall basic tasks like, you know, eating food, preparing food, like basic household management, hygiene tasks? And what is your overall executive functioning load for the week? So it's it's really calculating all of that drain on you, all of those demands on you, and then looking at what actually is your capacity to sustainably meet those demands. There's energy going out. What are you doing to rest during the week, to engage in your interests during the week, to have, you know, non-verbal, non-social time, to rest and restore your nervous system, to be in nature, to go for a walk, to spend time with pets? What are you actually able to do during that week to fill your tank back up again? Yeah, I love that, Monique, thinking about what are the restorative tasks And I especially loved you flagging there the importance for autistic people to have nonverbal social time because this is one of those very neurotypical expectations that every social interaction is a front-facing social interaction, meaning that it's actively focused on the interactive component and you're having to kind of exert a lot of energy engaging in that interaction. Whereas we know actually that a very valid and enjoyable way for autistic people to communicate socially is in parallel play. Gone are the days, hopefully, um, gone are the days where we're training autistic kids, stop parallel playing. It's a perfectly valid way to play. And autistic adults also need to engage in versions of parallel play. So if you're thinking about or like calculating your um, social interaction load, I guess, for the week, and you're noticing actually like 95% of these interactions are front-facing interactions. How can you then, like if it's not possible, you know, obviously with your kids, um, to delete some social interactions, if it's not possible to reduce it, what might be a good strategy is working out how can I actually include more parallel play rather than front-facing interactions? Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And I think um, it's really just looking at, yeah, like what's the output? What's the input? What can you delegate? What can you outsource? Mm -hmm. So for example, um, in Australia, we have a disability insurance service called like the NDIS. And if you're on the NDIS, you get a bunch of funding and you can choose like What is helping support you live, you know, your best life as a person with a disability? So some of the supports that, you know, we might look at bringing in for people would be 
if you want to use up your energy for that week in parenting or working or studying, you may need to delegate or outsource and look at using your funding for a gardener or someone to come and clean your house or um, a meal preparation service or a meal delivery service so that you have those spoons left over to do hygiene and other tasks that are priorities for you. And this is where I think age of diagnosis comes into it for people because particularly for um, women and minorities, a lot of people don't get an autism diagnosis till after they're already burned out. So we get a lot of people coming in their 20s and 30s and they have taken on so many demands and tried to manage them for so long and they're super burned out. Mm. Whereas if you get a diagnosis earlier, um, like at school age or early adulthood, you can really think about building and creating a life that's going to work for you long term. And what demands do you want to take on and what demands you know are going to exceed your capacity or do you need to increase? supports for. So we've touched on treatment and recovery throughout the episode today. Um, So this is if you actually are in burnout, what do you do to kind of get out of burnout? And I think far and away, the biggest recommendation is withdrawal of demands and rest. Yeah, absolutely. You know, even for occupational burnout, um, again, regardless of neurotype, one of my biggest recommendations is, you know, reducing your demands, delegating what you can and trying to, again, if possible, have a period away from all demands. So taking leave from work or pausing study, or going down to part-time work, part-time study, um, but really at least having two to three weeks off from work, study, as many demands as you can possibly do, and just actually resting for that minimum two to three week period is really important. Mm -hmm. For a lot of people who have actually hit full burnout and autistic burnout, they may find that they are unable to engage in work or study for three to six months. And they're really having to focus on saving their energy for basic self-care tasks. So whether that's hygiene, drinking water, eating food, um, really taking care of those basic needs. Another recommendation that I would have is to really think about while you're in that burnout recovery period, trying to minimize social interactions, stressful environments, and exposure to too much sensory input and new things, change or unexpected situations. So like my number one recommendation, honestly, is avoiding the grocery store (laughs) or crowded places when you're burned out. So, you know, maybe switch to an online delivery service or even click and collect um, because often grocery shopping really, really affects people when they're in burnout. It's giving yourself permission to actually reduce or delay any chores that you would normally do or anything that's on your plate that's non-critical and delegate these to someone else who has more spoons and really go back to the basics of your routine in general. You may need to wear more comfortable clothing, stick to your safe foods, reduce exposure to noise or smells. You may need more time alone. You may need to wear your earplugs or noise-canceling headphones more. You may need to rest in a quiet, dark room. 
You may find that you need to stim more as well to help process and self-regulate. You may need to do things like rocking, flapping, tapping, using stim toys, your wetted blanket, watching your favorite TV shows um, that you watch over and over, puzzles. You may need to spend more time focusing on your interests. You may need to increase executive functioning support from other people around you. So really taking the load off your executive functioning by outsourcing to calendars, reminders, whiteboards, automating your bills, use other people's executive functioning around you and really trying to maybe just shift your focus to focusing on one thing in your life, mm. really using that monotropic thinking mm. um, that autistic people are so good at and that hyper focus on one thing because if you're in burnout and you're still trying to juggle multiple demands that's going to keep you in burnout for longer so we flagged at the start of the episode today that we'd also be talking about the positives of burnout Now, as counterintuitive as that seems, I actually think brownout in particular, so getting those kind of early signs of burnout, actually has a really important function in signaling to us when it's time to enter a bit of a winter phase of our life. So Monique and I have talked before on the podcast about life actually occurring in cycles and seasons. Every single thing in nature, including human human beings, is cyclical. You know, we all go through phases and cycles, and it's really important that we're actually paying attention to the natural phases of our life, our cycles, particularly as women. You know, we're very cyclical creatures as women and experiencing those early signs of burnout and being able to listen to them is like tuning back into your natural intuition and being like, okay, I actually need to go and hibernate now. This is my body telling me I need to go to my sort of metaphorical home. I need to cocoon, I need to rest, I need to nourish my body and nourish my soul, I need to re-fertilize, you know, the, the soil of my mind. And that can actually be quite beautiful if we're actually able to listen to what our body is telling us and do that. And if we allow ourselves the space to do that. And what's really interesting is that how often someone needs to go home, you know, to this place of rest, of rejuvenation, of kind of soul restoration really depends on the person. Some people can go long stretches of time without going home, right? And these are people who maybe have more extroverted personalities or maybe their work in the world is less sort of outward focused. So, you know, they have less contact with the outward world. Some people need to go home really regularly. These are people whose nervous systems or personalities or, you know, minds and bodies are set up to be more sensitive, more perceptive to sensory stuff, emotional stuff, or who have more outward facing work, who are in constant contact or more regular contact with the outside world. Whatever your natural cycles are, the more you're able to tune into them and actually return home whenever your body needs you to, the better you're going to function long term. 
Yeah, and I think a really good point around that is that when you exist in a patriarchal society, patriarchal society sees any form of rest as weakness. It's really go, go, go all the time. And it sees resting and taking those cyclical breaks as shameful and something less. You must be productive at all times. Mm. And I think that gets back to the underlying lack of valuing of other ways of being other than being in the constant kind of masculine drive energy. And when we've got patriarchy and capitalism, it really exactly as you say, Monique, induces a sense of shame and deficiency when we are tuning in and following kind of our natural cycles. And I think the take home from that is just to do it anyway. That's what we know is, you know, intuitive medicine, intuitive healing, and what you know is right for you and your body and what phase you're in at that moment. That's what's right. So do it anyway. So just to finish off our episode today, we wanted to just quickly have a bit of a chat about parents and autistic burnout. Obviously, all of the things that we've talked about up until this point, so all the strategies, all the information on burnout and what causes it and what we can do as prevention and treatment, that all applies to parents equally as much. But I think the tricky thing, as we flagged at the start of the episode today, is that oftentimes it's that sense of, well, I actually logistically can't do all of that because of my financial needs to my family or my caretaking load um, or all the other things that go into parenting, particularly when you're parenting neurodivergent kids who've got their own sets of needs as well that you need to manage. Yeah. So part of managing your own levels of burnout and your levels of burnout in your family overall as a neurodivergent person that's a parent of neurodivergent children um, is to really, I think, examine what are the neurotypical expectations that you have around parenting your children, that you have around the rules of your family life in general, um, and like the demands that you expect of yourself and your children in general. Like how many of those are actually demands that are A, important to your own values, B, actual priorities, and see that you have the energy and the resources to meet without it constantly exceeding your capacity to cope. Mm -hmm. And anything that is a neurotypical expectation that doesn't meet those things, you might need to think of creative ways of, you know, what does life look like for you and your neurodivergent family and what are new neurodivergent expectations you can have of yourself? What is it that you actually want your neurodivergent family life to look like and be like and feel like? I think another really big thing there in terms of strategies is about thinking of the executive function load and how that can be better distributed within the household. So if you're co-parenting with someone and you are the primary or what might be called the frontline parent, right? You're the parent that, um, and again, thinking particularly if you've got neurodivergent kids as well, if you're the parent that is the one that they go to when they're having a meltdown, 
or you're the one that is managing their emotional health. You're the kind of person on the front line, so to speak. That is a huge job. So it might be that at certain phases of your kid's life, that just, it is what it is. That's what your job is at that phase of their life. But what often happens is the frontline parent is also the house manager, is also the cook, is also the cleaner, is also the activities manager for the family. And what I would suggest is that if you were the frontline parent at a particular phase of your child's life, your co-parent needs to take on pretty much every other household project because managing the emotions and being a co-regulator for kids who are experiencing chronic emotional dysregulation is one of the most draining things that a human being can do. A way to balance the load is by you only doing that and your co-parent taking on 90% of the other household jobs. That's To me, that's fair. And what that does is it actually removes a lot of the executive function demands from you. So your co-parent is doing a lot of the kind of day-to-day executive function management, and then you're doing the frontline parenting management. And your roles may shift. Another strategy there is if you've got kids of multiple ages, actually bringing in your older kids, not to do things like, you know, parent your younger kids, obviously, but giving each child an executive function task that's theirs to manage from where to go. So they're in charge of conceptualization. They're in charge of planning. They're in charge of implementation. They're in charge of reviewing. So each child, depending on their ages and what's reasonable for them, has one executive function task for the household. And this goes back to what you were saying, Monique, before around neurotypical parenting expectations. And I think I would kind of zoom out even further with this one in particular and say um, expectations on motherhood, right? It's this expectation that as a mother, you know, you're this person who's like always well-dressed and makes like amazing cakes and, you know, does all of these things. Um, and you never expect your children to be involved in any way in the functioning or management of the household. That's not great, <laughs> even for neurotypical families. Like it's helpful actually for kids to learn, okay, what do I need to do to you know participate in a household? Um, and particularly if you're in a neurodivergent household, balancing that load can actually be really helpful. So finally, I think The elephant in the room when we talk about burnout, parenting, neurodivergent parenting is that actually it is just a fact that your life is going to be more chaotic than if you didn't have kids or if you weren't a neurodivergent family or any other number of factors that are contributing to what's going on for you and your family at this point in time. So actually getting to a place where you can accept that this is the phase of your life that you are in now. And it actually just is going to be more chaotic than if those things weren't the case. So for instance, if you've got littlies, if you've got kids under five, for that those five years, your life is going to be a particular way. All the strategies in the world aren't going to change that. If you've got teenagers for that particular phase of your life, your life is going to be a certain way. 
And again, all the strategies in the world won't change that. So having a think about what phase of life am I in now and what phase of parenting am I in now? So that's the first side of it. And that actually, I think, can involve some grief, particularly if you are late diagnosed and you didn't receive a diagnosis prior to becoming a parent and you have become a parent, maybe your kids have been diagnosed and then you've been diagnosed, you know, secondary to that. And looking back and thinking, oh my God, if I'd have known, I would have set up all of these things and my life could have been so much easier or it could have been different. And that is something that deserves to be grieved. And you deserve to take space to actually sit with that and grieve that if that's something that you need. So I would even suggest working with a therapist around some of those themes because this stuff is really heavy and it's really hard to do on your own. So that's kind of one side of it. And then the other part there is going back to what we were saying about cycles and being intuitive and knowing, you know, when do you need to go home and take that rest and cocoon. Sometimes that can be on a macro scale, like, okay, the next couple of months I'm going to have like a rest period. But that can also be on a micro scale. Like actually every single individual day involves cycles. Sometimes during the day we feel energized and we feel like, great, yep, I'm going to do X, Y, Z. Other points during the day we want to sit and we want to rest and just reflect and think about what's next or what's come or just relax or do something that you enjoy. The obsession with productivity in our culture says that a day that includes any form of rejuvenation or rest or recuperation or reflection is a luxury. And that should only be done on special occasions. Well, I mean, that's bullshit. Like, that's not <laughs> how human beings work. That's not how our bodies work. So if you're a parent and it's not possible for you to take longer periods of rejuvenation and rest, thinking about how you can bring that into every day. Can you have a cup of tea standing and looking out your kitchen window if you really like the view? Can you sit down on the couch and stare into space for five minutes? Can you do whatever it is you need to do cyclically through the day to bring in those little micro periods of rest? Yeah, I think even just one minute every hour you know, mm, that's exactly. still going to add up and yeah. be something for your nervous system to give it that break. Mm. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us further, you can do so by subscribing to our Patreon. To become part of our Patreon community, you can buy us a coffee for $5 per month or a wine for $10 per month. All of our Patreon subscribers receive access to a backlog of exclusive content and to a monthly live Zoom hangout with us and our Patreon community. Our Zoom hangouts are a place to ask questions, chat about your experiences, and connect with other neurodivergent women. From this season onward, all Patreons will also receive basic episode transcripts released each week after our episode airs. Patreons shouting us to a monthly wine get all that plus one exclusive content post per month. We really appreciate your support as we aim to make quality mental health information accessible to everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. 
If you have a question or would like to contact us, you can do so through our Facebook and Instagram at the handle The Neurodivergent Woman Podcast or our website ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now.